think I think I might need better tricks. They were on to me on that one. Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Psalm 16. And the whole psalm, which can be found on page 850 in your pew Bibles. Psalm 16, a miktam of David. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day again. We thank you for your word that you've given to us. God, we pray that you would help us to hear it, to really hear it. Pray that you would help us to understand it. Help us to be ready to live it. God, we pray that by your word and your spirit, that you would even continue today the work that you have begun in each of us to continue to change us into the people that you have made us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Turning then to Luke 24. We get to read uh, the passage I was describing briefly during our children's sermon time. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. It should be found on page 1643 in your pew Bibles. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again? Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Hmm. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I mentioned in the children's sermon, these people should not have been wondering what had happened because Jesus already told them this is what it's going to be. And, uh, and we have similar situations for ourselves. But uh, this morning I want to look at Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, where we have Paul and Silas who are going on. And this is kind of the same sort of thing that they are telling people wherever they go, is don't be surprised because this is what God has been saying from the very beginning. And so we're going to look at um, how they proceed in explaining this. We're going to see the response of the people, and then we're also going to see um, how this all ties in with Jesus. So to turn with me to Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. It says, When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and they made Jason and the, other, and the others post-bond and let them go. All right, so that is, that is what happened. But let's go back through a little slower so we can see uh, more about what happened with them that we can see better what this has to do with us today. First of all, let's look at the, the method that Paul and his companions use when they get to the city. It's something that we have noticed as we've been going through the book of Acts. They're doing the same thing that they've been doing all along the way, which is when they come to a new place, where do they go? They go to the synagogue. Why do they go to the synagogue? That's where the people are, and which people in particular? (laughs) The bosses. (laughs) The Jewish people. So they are now traveling around in a non-Jewish area. And so it's not that they're in Jerusalem anymore or in Israel even where there's a lot of Jewish people and kind of wherever you go, you're going to run into Jewish people. They are now in uh, the Greek world on the northern side of the Mediterranean Sea. And as they are up there, there are some Jewish people, but now they're in the minority. (laughs) And so if you want to go talk to Jewish people, that's where you're going to go meet up with them is at the synagogue. So they go to the synagogue so they can talk to Jewish people. And why is it that they're wanting to talk to Jewish people? There shouldn't be any difference anymore, right? Well, they're wanting to talk to Jewish people. Uh, Something Paul wrote to the church in Rome is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation uh, to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And so he's got this sort of priority, prioritization, or an order to it. And it's the same order that you see uh, throughout all of history, that God first has revealed himself to the people of Israel in order that he might be known to the whole world. 
And so it's got to start somewhere, right? So it starts with the Jewish people, and that's what then Paul does. He goes and talks to these people, I think partly because of that uh, ordering that we see in how God reveals himself, but also because these are the people who know that story, right? If he goes and starts talking to the Greeks, they have all sorts of other gods they worship, but they don't know the story of the one true God who has created everything and who everyone has turned away from, but the God who loves them so much that he has continued to come after them and has shown himself again and again as to who he is, his character, and his love, and his grace, and his mercy, and his forgiveness, also his righteousness, and his holiness, and his judgment. And the things uh, that the Jewish people knew about, and all the stories, the ways that he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and he gave them the Ten Commandments, and he brought them into the land, and all the way through, and the prophets and the kings, and every bit of the story. The Jewish people knew this. The Greeks didn't know that. And so if you go first to the Greeks, and you're trying to explain all this, you've got a lot of ground to cover. If you go first to the Jewish people, you say, you know all those things? How every bit of the way that from the Garden of Eden on, we see that God has a plan for how he's going to restore everything, how he's going to rescue his people and redeem all of creation, and how all of this is going to hinge on one person, the person that we know as the Messiah, the anointed one. You know all those things? Let me tell you, that one has come. That one has come. Let me tell you about him. That's why Paul goes first to the Jewish people, because all he has to say is look back at all the story that you already know, and let me tell you how this person fits, and no one else does, and no one else can fit all those things. Um, so that's where he starts. But of course, he doesn't stop there. The message goes out to the Greeks as well. Um, however, if you paid close attention as we're reading through there, he doesn't just tell the whole story. He specifically focuses on certain parts of the story, the parts that people tended to skip over. They tended to miss. I don't know if you or maybe your spouse has selective hearing. Um, But you can imagine a scenario where a husband and wife are at home and the wife walks through the room and says, honey, when you get a chance, if you could take out the trash, that'd be great. Or, or, she walks through with the same tone of voice, same volume, everything. Honey, when you feel like it, why don't you go play golf? Now, let me ask you, which one might need a reminder later? <laughs> the trash. <laughs> You're not even married. How do you know this? Anyway. <laughs> Because you know, that's how it goes. There are some things, like, if that's what you're wanting already, and you hear that, you kind of perk up, and you're like, all right, well, let's go, we'll do that. If you're hearing something you don't want to do, uh, and the sooner you can forget that, well, maybe you forget it, and then you get reminded later. This is what Paul is reminding them of. Things that they have heard, things that they have known, but they never really heard it, and they didn't ever really know it, because it wasn't the parts they wanted to hear. And so what it was that he was having to point out? Not that God had promised a Messiah. They all knew that. That God had promised a Messiah, and they knew that this Messiah was going to come, and he was going to um, put things right. And so they looked at all the situations in their lives and in their world and politically, and they said, can't wait till he comes and puts it all right. This guy who's going to come in 
and he's going to be the son of David, the great king that we've ever, the greatest king we've ever had. And he's going to be like that. He's going to come in and he's going to drive out our enemies and put everything right as he establishes the kingdom again. And Paul says, you missed some things. You heard the parts that you wanted to hear and you've misunderstood what they meant because you missed the parts you didn't want to hear. That he was going to suffer. He wasn't going to come in victoriously. He was going to come in in humility and in weakness. And he was going to suffer. He was going to be killed. He was going to die. But that he was going to be raised again. And so he has to take them through that part of the story. This is what uh, said. Uh, he went in the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. That this was part of the things, or some of the things that um, the, the Old Testament had been talking about again and again. And so he's just going back to them and saying, look at these places. Look at these places. That's what had to happen. I don't know how you missed it, <laughs> but it's there. It's been there all along. That's what has to happen. And then he can get to the point where he says, and let me tell you how Jesus is that one who has done these things and who did come and suffer and die and was raised again which means that he is the Messiah. So he doesn't come in and say, hey, let me tell you about this guy Jesus I know. He comes in and says, let me tell you about what the Messiah is actually like from all the Old Testament scriptures that you're supposed to know. And then he says, this this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. All right, so when we come to the method, Paul's method is he goes first to the people who know the scriptures. And he talks to them about what they really say and then about how that all leads to Jesus, right? That's his method. What about the response? The response is fascinating because he's talking in a Jewish synagogue to Jewish people, and yet there are Greeks who actually respond well. Apparently, they're paying attention too. So he has, uh, says, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and quite a few prominent women. And so this is the point where the response seems like it's great. He explains it all, and there are some Jewish people who have heard all this and say, hallelujah, praise God, the Messiah has come. There are some Greeks who are interested in this God of Israel and say, what is this about? And they hear all this and say, hallelujah, praise God, the Messiah has come. And even the prominent women, and you say, why is that thrown in there? (laughs) How's that different than the rest? And I think part of that has to do with who's writing this. Remember that um, Acts is written by Luke, who also wrote Luke. And just for a fun activity sometime, why don't you just read through Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and even the book of Acts, and you will notice the way that he's not necessarily highlighting, but just pointing out the ways in which people who are on the outside or who are kind of second class somehow or who are on the margins of society aren't in the kingdom of God and how they are just as involved as everybody else. And so he doesn't make a huge deal out of it, but it's just always there. He just always seems to point it out. Oh, and by the way, also this, and also this. And so here we have, there's some Jews, and there's some Greeks, and, and, and women too. You know, that was another part of it. Um, and so we see men and women, Jews and Greeks, we see those boundaries breaking down, and we say, hallelujah. Praise God. Everybody's receiving this message, but they're not all receiving the message, and that's the second part of the response. Verse 5, but other Jews were jealous. 
And that's what leads into the second half of that story then, of all the rounding up the mob and starting a riot in the city. But we got to stop. Why were they jealous? Jesus um, said on a couple of occasions this, this line of how the first will be last and the last will be first, right? And that sounds great if you're last. <laughs> Doesn't sound so great if you're first. Because the first will be last, and you go, wait, now, wait a second. <laughs> and he tells a parable, actually, about uh, vineyard, workers in a vineyard. And some started early in the morning, and they just kept calling more and more people throughout the day. And at the end of the day, the owner of the vineyard goes, and he starts paying the workers, and he pays the last ones this amount. And as it keeps going on to the ones who are hired first, he pays them the same amount all the way through. And the way that the people who started first but got paid last, the way they responded was not, thank you very much, sir. Appreciate doing business with you. This is exactly what we agreed upon. Very good. No, they're, they're upset. They're angry. They're jealous. But they're not upset because they got paid too little. They're upset because other people got paid the same as them. And so what they say is they're upset because you have made them equal to us. You have made them equal to us. Now, of course, the owner of the vineyard says, look, I paid you what we had agreed to. You shouldn't be upset. And if I want to be generous and give them more than they deserve, that's between me and them. It has nothing to do with you. You're going to be upset just because I'm generous. And it's one thing to look at that parable and go, so is this how we're supposed to be doing business today? And that misses the point of the parable. That's not what he's talking about at all. What he's talking about is exactly what's going on here in Thessalonica with Paul and Silas and the Jews who respond like this. The Jews who had felt like we've been the ones who have been there from the beginning, and now you're making them, you're making those Greeks, you're making those women equal to us. And we think we have a special place. And this gets to the whole idea of what it means to be a chosen people. Because they had seen themselves as those who God had chosen. And we say, yes, but for what purpose? Chosen, why? And it was chosen to be a, they were blessed to be a blessing. They were chosen to spread the good news of God and who he is to the whole world. They were to be a light to the whole, to all the nations, right? This is what they were chosen for. And yet instead, they felt like they were chosen because they were the best. And if you're going to raise somebody else up and say they're just as good as me, it doesn't make any sense. Imagine you're in an elementary school playground. You got teams that are getting ready to pick for kickball. And you have, <laughs> okay, you, got, you pick your team captains, you pull them over, and the first captain picks the first player, and you go to the second captain, and you say, okay, who do you choose? And he says, well, nobody. You say, well, you got to pick somebody. Come on, who are you, you going to pick for your team? He says, I don't need a team. Are you kidding me? No, I'm the captain. That means I'm the best. That's why I was picked. So I've, I've got this on my own. You say, no, that's not what you were picked as captain for. <laughs> it's now time for you to have a team. And so um, there is a reason why he's picked as captain, and it's to actually gather the rest of the team. The Jewish people seem to have missed that. And so they, well, not all of them, but some of them had missed that. And so when it comes time uh, for the rest of the team to be gathered in, it says, there's some who respond with jealousy. 
They don't want to give up their place of prominence. They don't want to give up that uh, idea of specialness that way. And then we go to what happens next. They gather, instead of gathering uh, people in to the kingdom of God from all nations of the earth, I said they go and gather a mob and they start a riot in the city. So they can drive out the people who are causing the problems and then go right back to how things were before, where they still get to be the special ones and everybody else is everybody else. Now, what's fascinating to me is when they go and they drag, they can't find Paul and Silas, but they drag the people who are hosting them in before the officials. And I want you to listen to the things that they're saying. It says, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. What is fascinating to me about their accusations is they are all true. They say, these are guys who have been going around and they're causing trouble everywhere. And it's true. You read back through what's been going on in their lives. And as they go from place to place, it's causing trouble everywhere. And says they're defying Caesar's decrees because they're saying that there's another king besides Caesar. You can't do that in the Roman Empire. This is what's causing so much problem. But it's true. They are. They do have this message that there is another king besides Caesar. If you read through the, uh, the account of Jesus' trial, it is sadly ironic that we have the chief priests who actually say, we have no king but Caesar. The very people who ought to know better than anybody else that God is the king over everything. This is uh, the prayer that is prayed over and over again. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, king of the universe by Jewish families everywhere. And yet, when it comes time to get rid of Jesus, they say he's claiming to be a king, and we don't have any king except Caesar. Hmm. So Jesus is crucified with a sign over him, saying that he is the king after all. He is the king of the Jews, and more so. When Jesus is raised from the dead, he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, right? He is the king over everything. And so what they're saying is true. This is the message that Paul and Silas are preaching. There is a king, this is Jesus, and it is causing trouble everywhere they go, but we have to be careful here. Because while Paul and Silas are causing problems everywhere they go, they're not going places trying to cause problems. They're not going there to stir up trouble, and they're not going there to overthrow political systems. I referred you last week to Romans 13. <laughs> Look at that again to see what Paul thinks about the political systems of the day. He's not going to overthrow the systems. He's going to share the good news of Jesus. Now, one of the consequences of that is it tends to overflow, overthrow political systems. Because when they are all upside down and in direction, And when his message comes in, people's lives are changed. And when people's lives are changed, that means they start living differently. They're doing different things than they would have done before. And so even if if you have a 
a political figure of any sort who has gotten that way because of the bribes they have been collecting and the special favors they've been uh, giving to people with their various trades. And I said, this is great for me. This works fine. I've been lining my pockets. I've been advancing uh, through the positions. And then the message of Jesus comes in. And now they can't do that anymore. Not because it's just a rule and you can't collect bribes, but they can't do it with in good conscience because they now see the people that are being treated badly and who are not getting the justice that they ought to be getting because of how they are behaving. They say, I can't do this to that person anymore. Always before, I saw that person as someone that I could use to advance me. But now because of Jesus in my life, I see that person as someone I'm called to love and lay down my life for. And so as before, I would use them, take bribes from them, advance me, who cares what happens to them? Now, I'm willing to stand up for them, even if it means that I lose my job. Well, that's going to mess up the system, isn't it? (laughs) And so the system does get messed up when there is a new king, when there is a different king than Caesar, and when it runs and operates this kingdom on a whole different way of being and living and seeing the whole world. Okay. Which brings us then to what this has to do with us, right? And we go back to those three things. The method that Paul uses when he goes from place to place, the response that he gets, and what it means for Jesus to be king. So method, first of all, as you go place to place, do you know the scriptures like Paul knew them? Do you know how Jesus is the one who fits and the only one who fits those prophecies and what that means? Is this something you're able to share with friends and family when they have questions? Do you know the scriptures? This is what Paul is doing, starting with the scriptures and saying, let me show you from here. He starts with people who already have a uh, basic understanding or at least a respect for the scriptures and shows them from there. but do you know them well enough to do that? Secondly, response. Do you respond to the message of Jesus? Have you responded to the message of Jesus favorably in becoming a part of the number of the followers? Or have you rejected it? And another way to look at that is when other people receive the message Do you respond with joy and gladness? Or do you respond like these folks did, with jealousy? Well, I don't want anybody else. (laughs) That means they're being made equal to me. And I don't feel quite so special anymore. (laughs) How do you respond when other people, when other people respond well? And then third, what does it mean then for Jesus to be a king, for Jesus to be the one who uh, is the king over the kingdom of God, the kingdom that is not of this world, as he tells Pilate, but one that has now broken into this world. And if Jesus has authority over uh, everything in heaven and earth, what does that mean about the authority he has in your life? Are there aspects 
of your life where you say, well, yes, king over that, but not over this? Are there other kings that we've put in place ahead of him? Where we say, well, my first allegiance is to this, to so-and-so, such-and-such. And then otherwise, yeah, sure, I'll follow Jesus with the rest. Or is he the king? The one over all? If so, you will find yourself uh, living differently than the rest of the world. You will find yourself, like Paul and Silas, getting in trouble with various people who like the way the world works backwards, who don't want to see things put right. But, as is constantly uh, proclaimed throughout the Bible, the coming of Jesus and him being the king, while it does cause uh, systems to be upset, nevertheless, it is good news. It is good news for the king to be the one who should be the king. For the king to be the one who knows what it means to be a good king. For the king to be the one who actually lays down his life for us. So let us follow. Let him lead. Let him give us real life. And let us know what this says. That we can share this good news with everybody who needs to hear it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.